Thank you for listening to City Awakening Podcast. City Awakening is a gospel-centered church located in East Orlando that plants new churches, striving to be a multicultural, multi-generational church. For more information about City Awakening, follow us on social media or visit www.cityawakening.org. Called The Story where we're walking through from Genesis through Revelation, the entire Bible. We're hitting the major story points of the Bible to see that it's all interconnected. And so lucky you, you're actually here for the first week of the New Testament. We've made it to the New Testament. Some of you are like, I'm glad to be out of the Old Testament. The reading plan's still in the Old Testament for a few weeks, so you get, you get your fill of the Old Testament still. Uh, but we're gonna start preaching from the New Testament. Lucky for you though, Basically, everything we're talking about today in our text is Old Testament stuff. It's basically like the review, the review chapter of the New Testament for the Old Testament, okay? Uh, but I think this is going to give us a really good picture of that we don't have just like two different, completely different books of our Bible, right? We don't have the Old Testament where God's kind of like, ooh, I don't know what he's doing over there. That's a little scary. And then we have the New Testament where it's like, Jesus, yeah, that's awesome, right? Um, they're all interconnected. They're all pointing to what Jesus would do. And we're going to look at that in Matthew today. Um, it seems like I get, when, when we get the preaching schedule out, I get these like in-depth like Bible nerdy passages a lot. Don't know why. Um, the things that are like, not only do I need to explain this passage to you, but let me explain seven other things that make sense within it. But here you go. Um, I enjoy it. I'm not going to complain, but sometimes I got to limit myself in this. So we're going we're gonna to rock, rock through this. Um, so you can start opening your, uh, your Bibles to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew 1. So first book of the New Testament, first chapter of the New Testament. A fitting beginning. So again, Matthew is one of the four gospel accounts. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're telling us about the life of Jesus, the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, all of them seek, they're going to tell us about his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. And they all do it truthfully, but they all have their own kind of focus within them. Okay? They're not all just writing the exact same thing the exact same way. They have different things they're trying to note and point out. Among, among Jesus' time. So Matthew's gospel, if we're looking at it, it's probably the most Jewish of the gospels, okay? It's written primarily to a Jewish audience, pointing back to the Old Testament a lot, saying, hey, remember all that stuff we've learned and grown up with, Jesus represents all of that, okay? So he's writing to people who would have an understanding of what has happened in the Old Testament, and so he's trying to focus and show that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy and could rightly be called the king of the Jews. This is why he opens the book in the way that maybe seems odd to us. Okay? He's going to open it with a genealogy. We're going to get a list of names for 17 verses. Okay? And sometimes we skip these, right? Because it's a genealogy, it's a long list of names, it's names we don't like to pronounce. So we're like, cool, Matthew, sounds great, I'll skip to verse 18 and get to more of the storytelling stuff. But when we do that, we miss out on something, because this was really important for Matthew's Jewish audience. So we're going to walk through that in a way that helps us understand that. Another thing to note here is this list, if you were to, now I doubt many of us are doing this, that you're gonna, we're going to read this, and then you're going to go back through the Old Testament and trace back every single person to this. I don't think that's how you're going to spend your Sunday afternoon, but if it was how you were going to choose to spend your Sunday afternoon, you would find that this list is not exhaustive, okay? It's not every single person that Jesus was related to, 
Matthew hits the highlights, okay? And he hits them for a specific reason, but this is not unusual for people back then. You would note the most notable people in your genealogy as you went through, okay? So this is what Matthew's doing, and he's got a point to why he's doing this. So we'll see why, how it looks. So before we start reading, if you're, if you're in an actual Bible to Matthew, if you're in your actual Bible or if you're on your phone, you can kind of scroll and see this. If you look at Matthew 1, the first 17 verses come in kind of three sections, okay? Each one of those sections is highlighting a famous person or event within Jewish history. That's really important that Jesus is related to it, okay? So we're going to walk through kind of those events, and we're going to learn what Matthew, by highlighting those events and people, is teaching us about who Jesus is and who he would be and what his ministry would be. So let's take a look. Let's start in verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so for a lot of a lot of biblical writers do this. The first verse here is a summary of everything we're about to read, okay? So he says, if you boil down everything that I'm trying to communicate in these next verses, it's all up here in this one verse. And some of you are thinking, good, that's the one verse I'll read, and then I'll skip to the regular story stuff. But we're not going to do that today. Um, but he gives us a ton of information just in this one verse, okay? We get our first, per- our first point out of this verse, Okay. The first thing he introduces that he's going to start it with a genealogy, okay? What's interesting there is the Greek word that he uses for genealogy is the word Genesis, which if you've heard that before, you're either a big Hyundai fan or you, have, you recognize that it's the first book of the Bible, okay? So the Greek word that gets translated to that first book of the Bible is Genesis, okay? It's a different word in Hebrew, but the Greek version of the Old Testament, which most of the people at this point would be reading the Greek version of the Old Testament, they would have known the first book's Genesis, okay? And so he's basically pointing back to, hey, all the way from the beginning, here's the plan going forward, okay? So again, showing, as we've been doing throughout this series, that this is not an interconnected group of things that every once in a while the church kind of pooled together and said, oh, here's the Bible. Like, this is a story being told all throughout history. So he introduces us to that idea, that one of the first words of what would become the New Testament is this genesis of Jesus, this origin, this beginning of who he is. So that's the first key lesson we're going to see from here is that Jesus is our saving Messiah. It's our saving Messiah. Again, you could kind of boil this down to everything here. That's the first lesson we'll highlight. There's other things that point us to this. Jesus' own name points to this fact. Okay? The name Jesus, again, is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. Okay? It's the same name. Jesus and Joshua, same name. So whenever you hear someone who's like, man, they named their kid Jesus, a lot of pressure, right? So you hear a kid named Joshua, you're like, same pressure, just so you know, same name, all right? What it literally means is Yahweh, or the like famous name of God, so Yahweh saves, okay? So Jesus' name literally means God saves, okay? And then we get Christ, right? Christ is in his last name. You wouldn't roll up into Nazareth later in his life and be like, where's the Christ residence? Um... Not his name, it's a title, okay? Again, it's the New Testament version of the Old Testament word Messiah, which we talked about Messiah a lot. Messiah is the anointed um, savior or servant of God who would come to free the world of sins, okay? So in Jesus' title, we get God saves, here's the Messiah, basically, all right? So they were really trying to hit this on the nose by who he's talking about here. You'll also notice 
that he says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Okay? Two important people. If you were going to claim to be the Messiah, you needed to be related to Abraham because you had to be Jewish. You had to come from Abraham. And you had to be related to David. Okay? And we'll see why that's the case. So he's pointing back to these promises made in the Old Testament to look at this. Okay? So let's start with the Abraham side. So verse 2. First guy he mentions here is Abraham. Luke also has a genealogy. It's a little bit different. Some people say it's from Mary's line of people. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew's like, I'm going to start with Abraham. We're not going all the way back yet. Um, But we start with Abraham here. So it says, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Now hopefully these are some familiar names. We're going to get into some names that are not familiar. Um, These are some familiar ones. With these, we basically have most of the storylines of the book of Genesis. All right, we go from Abraham, we go to his son Isaac, we go to Jacob and all his shenanigans that he got into. We go to all his kids. We look at Joseph a lot in that one. But Judah is the one that gets highlighted here. But we'll look at that. This is where we get, this is where we get again, the main storylines of Genesis. Now, the problem with this is, if you think back to Genesis, this storyline, this name line, almost didn't happen. Okay? Abraham and Sarah, his wife, they were about 100 years old. Never had a kid. Didn't seem like they were going to have a kid. They were 100. It's probably good, right? Usually, right? Um, So they're thinking, we're not going to have a kid. It's not going to happen. They're lamenting this fact. Saying, look, we lived our whole lives. Everything we have is just going to get passed on to some random, like, person of our household, some random distant relative. And this is after God had told them to leave their homeland because God had had something he wanted them to do. So you can tell these people, these are going to be people who are, who are bitter about this, they're, they're feeling like God's holding out on them, like what is happening, until we get to Genesis 15, when we see God's plan in action. So let's look at Genesis 15. It says, after these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what can you give me since I am childless and the heir of the house is Eliezer of Damascus? Legitimate question from Abraham, right? God's like, hey, I'm going to really bless you. And Abraham's like, well, you haven't done it. I don't know what you're going to do, right? I like the honesty from Abraham, right? The Bible's not full of people who are just like, yes, God, I believe you. I'm a robot. Like, real question, right? He does not know where this blessing's coming from. Abraham continues, look, you've given me no offspring, so a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him, this one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky, count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abraham goes to God feeling like, hey, you're holding out on this promise. I don't know what's about to happen here. I'm not going to leave any kind of lasting legacy. And he comes away from that. Instead of being disappointed, he gets an even greater promise than he expected. We're going to see a theme with that today. So not only is he actually going to have a son, which seems impossible, his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. We even get a picture of the gospel in verse 6 where Abraham, just Abraham's belief in the fact that God can do this and that he will do it is credited to him as righteousness by God. 
okay? Just the belief that, hey, God is able to do this. He is powerful. I am not. I believe in him gets credited to Abraham as righteousness before God. It's a picture of what happens in the gospel with us. A few chapters later in Genesis, God fulfills the promise. Isaac is born. His name means laughter because Sarah laughed when God told her that she was going to have a kid, um, which is pretty funny. Um, She's like, don't think so. Um, God had other plans. Um, But he fulfills the promise. But then we get an interesting story in Genesis 22, where again, looks like this promise is going to end. God comes to Abraham and he tells him to take his son Isaac. The phrase, your son, your only son, in Genesis 22 is repeated like seven times. God's really driving home, like, take your son, your only son, and go do this. And he tells him to kill him and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, this is obviously horrifying. It's also counterintuitive. I thought this was the son that's going to become the descendants as numerous as the stars. I don't understand how this works. Abraham shows enough faith that says, hey, God's going to figure something out here. I don't think God's just going to have me kill my child here. I don't, I don't think so, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to be obedient. He goes about, he's about to kill Isaac, and God stops him. He says, you've demonstrated your faith. He gives him a ram to offer as a sacrifice, and then he gives him this promise, an extension on his, on his former one. In Genesis 22, 15, angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. So not only do we get a reiteration of the promise, hey, you're going to have a big family. The name Abraham in Hebrew means like big, big daddy. Weird name. Um, Abraham meant big daddy, and you have the aham in there. It makes really big daddy, right? So he's going to have lots of kids um, is, what, is what that means. So not only is he going to have this tons of offspring, but that his offspring are going to bless all peoples of the world. That's all nations. And we see here with Matthew pointing out that, hey, Jesus is related to Abraham. It's Matthew saying, hey, that blessing that's supposed to come to the whole world, that's this guy, Jesus. So that's the second lesson we learn here is that Jesus is a blessing to the entire world. Now, many people, most people in the world are going to look at Jesus as this historical figure, even if they don't really believe in him as as a son of God, and they'll say, yeah, I mean, he was probably a you know, general net positive. We get a lot of our moral teaching from the Bible. Um, some people would say it's negative. Um, but, you know, most people, approval ratings can be like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, pretty positive figure in history, even if they don't believe in him. Now, his moral, and, you know, his moral teachings, his social teachings were certainly good, but what we need most from Jesus was not that, but it was his sacrificial death and resurrection for our sin. That in Genesis 22, don't sacrifice your son, your only son, because guess what? I'm going to sacrifice my son, my only son, in place as a sacrifice, that he will now be the blessing to the entire world. And so Matthew, as he points this out to his Jewish audience, is basically putting up a signpost being like, hey, that replacement sacrifice, here he is. He's come, and he's a blessing to the whole world. So he fulfills what we talked about. Lewis preached a couple weeks ago about these covenants 
in the, in the Old Testament. Abraham gets one of them. It's the Abrahamic covenant about how you'll have all these descendants. That's the Jewish people. And that through your descendants, the whole world would be blessed. That's the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus fulfills that. Let's take a look at one of his other famous relatives. Okay? We go through Abraham's line. We get to verse 5. And we see, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. We'll circle back to that line. Matthew's really throwing a knife in there with that one. Um, we'll circle back to that line. Um, we know Jesus needs to be related to Abraham to be Jewish, right? To be part of the Abrahamic covenant. But why does he need to be related to David, right? Is this just like Matthew bragging for Jesus? Be like, dude, he's related to the king. It's pretty sweet, right? I'm related from royalty. That's like you ask anyone who can trace their lineage back to like somewhere in Europe, be like, oh yeah, I have family in Scotland. We had like four castles. And you're like, I don't think you did. Um, I'm not sure that's true. Um, so maybe that's, what Matthew, you know, maybe that's what Matthew's doing, right? Is this just like a cool thing that came up in like the ancestry.com thing? Like the little leaf popped up. It's like, no way, King David, sweet. No, of course not, right? Matthew's showing something here. He's showing us again that Jesus fulfills these kind of prophecies. And we talked about this. This is another covenant from the Old Testament. This is the, David, the Davidic covenant. Uh, we see this in 2 Samuel 7. David is, is sitting in Jerusalem. He's, he's become king. He's powerful. And he says, hey, wait, uh, the Ark of the Covenant is still like off in a tent somewhere in someone's house. We should build God a temple, right? We're steady now. We've got this. We, we've established ourselves as like the kingdom of Israel. Let's build God a grand temple right? I'm our king. I want to do this. The prophet Nathan comes to him and says, initially Nathan's like, sounds good, David, sweet, and then walks away. And then God stops him midway through the walk and is like, hey, you need to go tell David something that he's not going to like. And Nathan's like, I don't want to do that. But he does it, right? Because you don't want to go back and tell the king something he doesn't like, right? That's a bad way. That's a good way to lose your head um, a lot of times if you're a prophet. But Nathan does it. And he goes to David and he says, uh, here's the thing you're not going to be the one that builds the temple. Your son's going to build it. And David is distraught. David's like, wait, I mean, I want to do a good thing for God. What, you know, why not? So again, he's, you know, he's, feeling the, he's feeling the pressure of this. And again, someone who is disappointed in something that goes on gets a promise of something even greater. Nathan says, hey, David, I know you're disappointed. Here's the deal, though. God's telling me to tell you something. Your son's going to build it, but someone else from your family is going to be sitting on the throne forever. So again, you go from, hey, you don't get to do this thing right now, but guess what? I'll make sure someone from your family rules forever. Decent trade-off, right? I'm sure David's like, all right, that sounds pretty sweet. We're ruling all the time. And again, Matthew is saying, guess what? Here he is. Okay, so David and Solomon are the two like greatest kings of Israel for a time, but they're going to have a descendant who surpasses them completely. That's the third lesson here. Jesus is the true and righteous king. Well, those guys were good kings. We know that they're still human. They still had moral issues. We're going to talk about one of David's. Um, we still see these issues but they're going to have someone perfect. And again, this gets prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 9 gives us a really clear picture of this. 
For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So by highlighting Jesus' relation to King David, Matthew's trying to write out in big, bold letters, this is the one we've been waiting for. The one we hoped for, the king we needed, this is him. Now throughout Jesus' ministry, his kingship claims are going to be the one that really trigger his opposition against him. He almost, gets, he almost gets stoned in his hometown of Nazareth when he quotes another Isaiah uh, prophecy about the king coming, and he reads it, and he goes, today this prophecy was fulfilled in your hearing. So basically he says, hey guys, that guy, me, who has two thumbs and is the king, this guy, right? That's what he's doing. And they try to stone him. It's, bad, it's a bad day. I've never been, no one's thrown rocks at me as I came off the stage. Hopefully today won't be that day. We can hope. Um, this same kingship claim is the reason the Romans mock him at his, at his execution, right? The reason we have the crown of thorns and he gets a purple robe on him. There's a sign put on his thing that says, hail the king of the Jews. Pilate keeps saying, shall I give you this king of the Jews? And that incites the whole crowd into almost a riot. The Jewish leader's final rejection of Jesus comes at this trial when they brazenly say, we have no king but Caesar, So while Jesus is the rightful king, that doesn't mean he's the accepted one for a lot of people. And it's that rejection that leads us further and further and further away from him. Just because Jesus wasn't the king they wanted doesn't mean that he wasn't the king that they needed and that we needed as well. Matthew points to that. We live in a world now that looks at kind of any kind of authority over us as a hindrance for living a good life. Right, if you find anything that would limit you, that would say, hey, this is not this, you, got, you know, you got to fall in line here, that, that messes things up. Traditional norms and ethics are seen as a product of like racism or authoritarianism or the patriarchy. Biology is seen as an imposition on happiness in, in, in gender, gender ideology when we look at that. What our society wants today, more than anything, right, take, take away singular issues, what it wants more than anything is to place ourselves on the throne. To say, I make the calls, and that's what it is. I get to be the umpire. Balls and strikes are mine. If I call it a ball, it's a ball. If I call it a strike, it's a strike. No one can tell me different. That's what we're looking for, and that's why this kingship idea of Jesus is such a rub against who we are. We'd like him to be the little mellow teacher off in the back, like, yeah, just love each other, man. Um, But we don't like when he's out here and says, hey, this is right, this is wrong, that's where we get pushed back, and that's where he got pushed back back in his day. As much as we would hate to, re- to admit it, we are all ruled and will be ruled by something. And when we put a pretender on the throne, it never serves us right in the long run. Now, Matthew's going to give us an historical example of this as we go on in his genealogy. Okay? So the kingdom of Israel reaches its high point under David and Solomon as their kings. When Solomon dies everything starts to go downhill, okay? The kingdom splits into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Israel has all bad kings, essentially. All these guys are worshiping idols. They're taking them doing crazy things. Judah is like a mixed bag. Sometimes you get a good one. Sometimes you get a bad one, right? Judah's a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That kind of idea. 
And eventually it's going to lead them into kind of the third piece of history that Matthew's going to point out. So let's go. This is where we get all the fun names, and I get to read them all. Verse 7. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. Okay? So the third thing we're going to highlight here is this exile to Babylon. We have a really hard time wrapping our heads around how devastating this was on Israel's history. Israel and Judah were in the promised land, okay? This land promised all the way back to Abraham, hey, your ancestors are going to live in this land. It was a big deal when they got in there, okay? They lived in slavery in Egypt. Moses takes them out of the slavery, says, you're heading to the promised land. Off we go. They go into the promised land. They conquer it. They rule it. And then within a few generations... It's a lot of generations, but within, you know, a span of, you know, a few hundred years, they get kicked out of the promised land. This is a devastating blow for them. The Israel, the northern kingdom, gets wiped out by the Assyrians and almost never really comes back. You get little, little trickles back of a few people from Israel. Judah gets taken over by the Babylonians, and it's this devastating thing. We see a picture of it in uh, in Psalm 137, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion's another name for Jerusalem. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees and our, and our captors. There asked us for songs and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? So this was a devastating thing. Everything, this would have been all hope is lost for Israel. Again, all the promises that God would have made to Israel, they would have thought, well, these are over. We don't live in the promised land anymore. We've been captured by a foreign nation, a bunch of idol worshipers. Israel was called since Abraham to live there. But that forever changed. Verse 12 through 16 of Matthew 1 show us the consequences of the exile extended even to the time of Jesus' life. Now many people, the Babylonians took over. The Persians came and took over the Babylonians. It's a brief history lesson. Babylonians take over Israel. They control kind of the Middle East area. In come the Persians. They took over the Babylonians. The Persians let a bunch of the Jewish people go back to Israel. Say, all right, you can go live there again. That's fine. But we rule. We're in control. The Greeks come and take over the Persians. The Persians, again, let them live there, but then at one point they destroy the temple and they, like, kill a pig on the altar, which is a big, you know, big no-no in the temple, right? So they desecrate the temple. And then the Romans take over the Greeks, okay? And that's where we get to Jesus' time. The Romans are still ruling Jerusalem. So while the Jews are living there, they're not ruling it. So they're still living in, like, the consequences of this exile as they struggle Surely they would have thought that Israel had lost the right to claim that a Messiah or a Savior would come from them. But that's exactly what Matthew is trying to show them is not true. Okay? They've even come off of 400 years before this of silence, where there were no prophets, there was no continued word from the Lord. They call it the silent period in Jewish history. 
And so everything seems down, but Matthew points in and says, here's the light in the midst of this, that Jesus comes even from the people of the exile. Here he comes and teaches us the fourth lesson. Jesus came for sinners and those on the fringes. No one is excluded from the redeeming work of Jesus if they come to him. Let's explore this. Throughout the history, again, this is stuff we've studied throughout the series. God was brutally honest honest about the sin of the people. When we talked about Hosea, we said that he compared the nation of Israel to a wife who would just leave her family, like a spouse who would leave their family, leave their children and their spouse in the lurch and just go to other people. In Isaiah, he says that their sin is unique among the nations because they try to take the benefits of their own God while worshiping other gods. So they say, yeah, we'll enjoy the protection of Yahweh, but what about Baal? What about Molech? Those guys seem pretty cool too. And he said they were uniquely sinful in that because other places would say, oh, maybe our God's not strong. Let's just worship this God. Israel tried to do both. But even in the midst of this, he says, while there's going to be punishment for this, I will leave a remnant. I will leave something of my people left to come back to me. And Jesus comes out of that remnant that he would be our righteousness on their behalf. And it applies today. Your sinful past, your struggles, your current ones, they don't exclude you from God's love and grace. They're the very things that should lead you to Jesus because he's the only one who can deal with them. Trying to say, I'm sinful, therefore I need to figure this out before I go to Jesus, is pointless. It'd be like saying, you have, a, you, know, you have a terrible disease and you know there's a medicine that cures it. It's the only medicine that cures it, but you're like, yeah, but before I go take that medicine, let me try some different approaches. Maybe I can take like 17 Tylenol and that'll help, and then I go to the thing. And you're like, that medicine doesn't help you. You need the one medicine that helps you. Go toward it. And Jesus is that one. He didn't come, Jesus didn't come because we were pretty close to following him. And we just needed a little help across the finish line. He came because we were dead in our sins. We were children of wrath. We were lovers of darkness. We were the ones exiled. Isaiah says we were the ones sitting in darkness. That he came to be a great light. Matthew even points to some people in, uh, in Jesus' lineage that would kind of lend, lend home this point. I'll go through these quick. People we wouldn't expect. Okay, verse 3, we see Tamar. Maybe you've never heard of that person. That's okay. A little bit of a unique story. Weird story. Um, verse 5, we see Rahab and Ruth. Verse 6, we see the wife of Uriah. Um, we know that to be Bathsheba from the David and Bathsheba story. And then verse 16, we see Mary. It's the mother of Jesus. Okay, a couple reasons why this is weird. A, sorry ladies, you wouldn't include women in a Jewish genealogy. I hate to say it, they didn't really care who your mom was. It was all about who your dad was, okay? So it's just weird in and of itself that he would mention women in there, okay? And of the women he chose, he chose like the worst possible names he could mention, okay? So a couple things. Uh, These things are, like these names are dripping with problematic things for a Jewish genealogy, okay? First of all, they're probably, they would be problematic ethnically, okay? Rahab and Ruth, not Jewish. They're Gentiles, okay? Rahab was a Canaanite. She lived in Jericho. Uh, Ruth was from Moab. Both of those places, bitter enemies of Israel, okay? So it'd be weird for you to point out, oh, look at these Gentiles here, right? There's even a possibility that Bathsheba was a Gentile because her husband, Uriah, was a Hittite, Okay? 
So we've got people who are not Jewish ethnically in Jesus' line. So again, Matthew is pointing out, hey, Jesus, it doesn't matter. This Jewishness matters because he's related to Abraham. He's part of that lineage. But it doesn't matter. The the Gentile thing doesn't matter because he's going to be a blessing to all nations. It's a beautiful picture of this. But people, the first time they would have read that would have been like, oh my gosh, why is he mentioning the Gentiles in there? They're not supposed to know about that. What the heck, Matthew? Um, Keep that on the down low. Okay? They would not have wanted this. All right. It's also, these names are clouded with sin, especially sexual sin. Okay? We won't go into all the details. Rahab, prostitute in Jericho. Says it straight up. Her name was Rahab the harlot. Fun times. She's She's in the family line. Tamar's story, full of sin. Okay? Long story short, she dresses up as a prostitute, seduces her father in law, who gets her pregnant with twins. It's like a Jerry Springer episode up in here. Okay? Tough one. Okay? Her father in law is Judah, who's the son of Jacob, and he is the the clan that Jesus comes from. Jesus would eventually be referred to as the Lion of Judah, and he is the process of Judah's extramarital affair with a disguised prostitute who happened to be his his daughter-in-law. Yikes, okay? Matthew doesn't even mention Bathsheba's name because he wants it to sound extra salacious by calling her Uriah's wife, okay? (laughs) David sees Uriah's wife bathing, takes her, gets her pregnant, realizes, I got to cover this up, kills her husband, yikes, and then as punishment, sadly, that baby ends up not, not making it, but they get married. The second child is Solomon. So Solomon, the wisest and greatest king, comes out of David's greatest sin with Bathsheba. And if we're honest, you can imagine the rumors that circled around Mary, right? The unmarried virgin who is having a child, right? A lot of people are going to go, that's not how that works, Right? So this is all over the place in there. This is all over the place. And again, Matthew, if you weren't careful, you'd think he was like a muckraking journalist or politician who's trying to discredit Jesus. But in reality, he's pointing out something beautiful about Jesus and something unique about Jesus as the Messiah sent by God. We see this throughout Jesus' ministry, when he comes into his healing ministry, different things like this. When Jesus comes into contact with sin and uncleanness, In the Jewish mindset, if you come into contact with uncleanness, you now are unclean, okay? They're unclean, you're unclean, you got to do something to make yourself clean, okay? When Jesus comes into contact with uncleanness, he makes them clean and remains clean. So even in his lineage, when you look back and go, yikes, there's some skeletons in that closet, Jesus is fine with it. He can handle that. We see it throughout his entire ministry. This is who Jesus was and who he still is today, as we wrap up today. He can enter into the darkest and dirtiest situation and make it clean. He can enter into a broken marriage and purify it. He can enter into generations of sin and abuse and redeem it. He can look at any past or present that we would normally hide, and he can say, yeah, my family was pretty crazy too. This brings us back to the big idea for today. As we look at the beginning of the New Testament, and the band can come on up. I didn't give them a, I didn't give them a, a, a word for this. Um, 
big idea is Jesus was and is everything that the Bible says he would be. Again, before Matthew goes into anything that Jesus would do, any of his ministry, he points back and says, hey, all this stuff that we've been reading for thousands of years, in what, to them, they didn't call it the Old Testament, that was just the Bible, right? That's the only one they had. It's our current testament. Um, everything we've read, we find in this guy. Despite all the stuff that looks like it would discredit, despite all the times where it looks like, hey, this isn't going to actually work out, he becomes the Messiah that would step in. Everything God was doing was according to his perfect plan. And since we can see that throughout Jesus' life, I hope that can lead us to trust him with our own lives. That you would look back at your life and you would say, man, the things that I did back then are something that I wouldn't want people to know. The things that were done to me are things that seem like they have power over me. But we worship a Savior who can walk into any of that and redeem it and can save out of it. And it may not be the way we think he's going to. (laughs) The, The reason Jesus goes to the cross is because he wasn't the Messiah that people wanted him to be. They wanted a guy on a horse, come in, let's knock Rome out of here. Israel's the best, let's go. And in reality, he came as a guy who was meek and was willing to die on a Roman cross. So despite the fact that sometimes the plan doesn't look like it's what you and I would do, that's probably a good thing, because if we're honest, your and my plans aren't always good. They don't work out very well sometimes. So if Jesus overcomes the trials and difficulties of his own family tree, his own legacy, he overcomes those for us as well. And so whether we believe that for the first time today or as we continue to believe in Jesus, I hope we would lean into that. And if that's something you want to talk about with someone here, we'd love to do that with you. We'd love to connect with this Savior who was who the Bible said he is over and over and over again. There's a promise made about Jesus, he fulfills it. We're going to see that as we get into the New Testament now. We're going to keep pointing back to all that Old Testament stuff we've talked about. We won't leave it behind. So let's look forward to that. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you again for a time to just look at who you are. That you didn't just come out of the blue and say, look, here I am, I'm here to do stuff. You prepared the way from the time we first sinned all through the development of the people of Israel, you were pointing to someone that would come and make this right. And you did. And we thank you that your plans are greater than ours. That you are stronger than us. You are wiser than us. And that your love is greater than ours. Thank you for being able to step into the unclean and make it clean. I pray that you would continue to do that for us today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.